of those Sundays, like, do we have to keep looking at this guy? Romans. We're not finished quite yet. Well, wait a minute. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. We we can't go back. Uh, I was sharing with him after he uh, did such a wonderful job reminding us and and teaching us from the last chapter of Romans that I was distracted as he was preaching. Distracted not so much from what he was saying, but distracted by what he was saying that was causing my mind to go in a direction of thinking, okay, Lord willing, I think I know where I'm going next because I don't know that I'm quite finished with Romans yet either. And so on the handout that you're being passed, if you have your Bibles in whatever form you have them, you can go ahead and turn to Second Peter chapter 1. The text that we'll be looking at is provided on your handout either way. But I just want to remind you uh, some of the things that Tim said that will hopefully make a connection between what he preached and what I long to preach today. But I probably should go ahead and say that the opinions and views expressed in this sermon may not be the conclusions with which the previous sermon intended to have. So I'll just go ahead and make that disclaimer right now that this may not be exactly where Tim was going to go with his points that he was making if if he had another sermon to build on. But this is certainly where I was, where my mind was going. Uh, And so reminding you that in the last message that Tim brought, he said that we must not submit to our feelings or emotions, our traditions or our preferences, but to a revealed supernatural word from God if we want to understand God. We can't trust our emotions or our feelings. We can't let what we have always done or what we want to do lead us into knowing about God. We must commit ourselves to a revealed supernatural word from God in order to understand him. He also was talking about this God who kept secrets. That everything that God is going to share with mankind is not going to be shared with every person. That God kept secret and God also disclosed the gospel. We must not add to nor subtract from the gospel. God must do a divine work on our hearts in order for us to embrace the gospel. So from some, he hides it. To others, he reveals it. And to those who revealed it, we must embrace it. But it's only going to be done by God's grace. Now, hopefully that's ringing some memory of perhaps what Tim was preaching about that particular Sunday a few weeks ago. But my question that I was thinking about then as he was preaching and the one that I have been thinking over the last couple of weeks is that what does it look like when we don't trust God who reveals the way he chooses? What's the alternative? If we say, well, I I don't like what Tim said. I I don't think that that's true. I'm just going to 
I'm going to just trust my own feelings and my own wisdom. I'm going to trust my own preferences. I'm going to trust what, I, what has always worked for me in pursuing God. What happens if that's the way we choose to go? Well, in my opinion, I think it gets dark. I think it gets real dark. Darkness that characterizes the environment in which we live without truth in regards to understanding and behavior. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this because I'm certainly not an expert. As a matter of fact, Tim probably could do a really great job as he has from time to time inserted into his lessons about where we are at as a culture. And when, when we think about what has happened over the last few hundred years of human history, and we think about that period of time in which he was referring to even those dark ages up until about 700 years ago to where illiteracy was rampant. There was only a few individuals who could read and write in a particular language, regardless of what culture you were in. But there came a time in which that changed. And we had a, an enlightenment period, a renaissance, if you will. And this happened over the course of centuries. It did, this didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen over a weekend conference. This has happened over decades and centuries and through many individuals being used in this movement in which men and women were now all of a sudden able to read. They were able to have access to the word of God. They had the ability to learn about science. And so we go from an enlightenment period that started probably somewhere around the early 18th century on through the beginnings of our country, which we obviously are a product of this time, where there has been a reformation of the church that has been established and is continuing to be promoted around the world. And it ushers in a time of modernism industrialism in which we're able to depend upon ourselves we're we're learning how we can do things on our own and this whole philosophical movement interacted with the practical lives of individuals in which we realize you know what we really don't need this person we call god and we certainly don't need people in robes and white collars telling us what to think about it if we so choose to pursue it And so we come to a point in which we would call this modernism, which has had its stranglehold on our culture, in which we really have gone beyond the uh, life of, that's dependent upon faith and upon things that you can't rationalize, things that you can't put in a test tube and, and work out some sort of formula to prove it. And so we see a world, even when the legal court case will take the act of creation and say that there was a God who created and that this theory of evolution, uh, that somehow it all formed by chance legally, that was disproved. But what world do you live in? One that has fully taken in 
This whole idea that this world is here without even a designer, much less a God who holds it accountable and sustains it all. And so we live in a godless society. This is what happens when you reject taking God's revelation for what it is and let it be revealed to whom God will reveal it to. Living on our own. Now, the ironic thing is that all of that human effort, all of that pursuit of learning all that we can learn apart from God has not left us to have much confidence ourselves, for now we live in a period in which we would call postmodernism, in which the conclusion that we can draw from all of our history is that we really don't know anything is that we really can't confirm anything. And so, therefore, there is no absolute truth or any objective truths that we have to adhere ourselves. Just do what you think is best. You do what works for you. We don't need, a, we don't need some being who, who makes some charge that we are his creation and that we are somehow accountable to him. Just do what works for you because at the end of the day, it won't matter. You will cease to exist. That's dark. And you wonder sometimes which was darker, the days in which we're living or the days in which we call the dark ages where there was just a lack of knowledge. We were able to, because of history, look at the development of just how sinful we are. And how we can truly, even when God is gracious enough to give us understanding about the lives which we live to some degree, we still just throw it in the garbage. We still just try to make it on our own. It's dark. But darkness is not something that was strange to Paul. If you remember from Romans chapter 2, as you have on your sheet, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having, the law, the, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, Paul is making a, a, a relationship between light Truth and darkness, ignorance. He understood that the Jews thought that because they had the law and because they felt they were enlightened by the law, that they could somehow be a teacher. And he was questioning just what profit is that to you if you think that, which if we continued on in Romans, which we did many months ago, you may recall it was futile. Because they themselves were not keeping the law. They, they knew the law, but they weren't keeping it. He also says in Romans 13, if you remember when we were talking about love does no wrong to a neighbor, and that is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says, cast off the works of darkness. Not just the things that you did in a room with the lights out. Not just what you did at night when there was no light shining. But what you did out of ignorance. What you did according to non-truth. What you did in sin. Of course, John tells us that's 
Men love darkness, for their deeds are evil. So there is this relationship that we see in Scripture when it comes to truth being light. And we can see in our lives, the world in which we live has been influenced heavily by darkness. In spite of the fact there has been so much enlightenment, both spiritually and sexually, in the world in which we live. So what should we do? We should commit to God's work in God's way, embracing his word, particularly the gospel, and trust him to do what? Reveal it. We commit ourselves to his word. We commit ourselves to his truth. In the world in which we live, you think, well, you know what? There's so many problems over here we need to fix, and we can do it politically. If we can elect the right officials over here and pass the right kind of laws, we can fix the problems of the world. That's one train of thought. Or you could go over here and say, you know, if we just distributed all the money to everywhere where everybody's poverty stricken and where everybody is lacking, if we could sort of have to somehow redistribute everything, that would fix the problems of the world. Or if we could just all go sit up on the summit of some high mountain at a high altitude and somehow go up there and just meditate for about three weeks at a time and we could just sort of clear our minds of all the gunk of the world and we could just be better people. We could come down off the mountain and we could just treat each other with love and compassion. We would all get along. We would all agree about everything and everything would just be wonderful. Now, see, you're looking at me and saying, Mark, I already know that because that's the world I live in. I hear people talk about stuff like that all the time. But I don't hear very many people saying, you know what, I'm just going to commit myself to what God has revealed in his word. I'm going to let him do his work his way. And you know what, to whom he reveals it, he'll reveal it. He's going to accomplish what he wants to do. Why? For his glory. But I want to commit myself to that. And by God's grace, we will all leave this place today committed to doing just that. Now, what in the world does that have to do with 2 Peter chapter 1. I don't know, but maybe we'll find out by the time we're finished with this. Let's read. Beginning in verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Wow. Peter was one of two other human beings apart from Christ, to go up on this mountain and see and hear things that nobody else did. There was a declaration that they observed that no one else was privy to. As a matter of fact, Jesus told them not to say anything about it until after he was gone. So they had to keep it to themselves. Can you imagine an opportunity for this? But what's the context of this? Well, first of all, we have to remember that Peter is writing this letter to a group of people, believers, who he has encouraged in the first few verses of chapter 1 to make sure you are growing in Christ. 
You need to be mature in Christ because if you don't mature in Christ, you're going to be unfruitful. But if you do mature in Christ, oh, what an entrance into the kingdom you will have. I was talking to a group of people who have been scattered because of their faith. These people have been run off from where they used to live because of who they follow. Christ. And so he begins this letter by telling them that you need to follow after Christ. You need to mature in Christ. Because at the end of that road, there is going to be a tremendous entrance into the kingdom. And then he goes in and he talks about, but we didn't follow cleverly devised fables. Now, the context in which he's talking here is in this period of time, you, you've heard of the mythological gods, whether it be Greek gods or Roman gods, they pretty much are the same ones. They just give them different names, but they basically perform the same feats. And what would be done is that those who worship these gods would make up these truly heroic stories so that you would be impressed by the superhuman abilities of these gods who weren't perfect, but they were much better than any human being could ever be. And so therefore, we're going to make a statue of them. They're going to worship. Peter says, when it, comes, when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the one who will give you a wonderful entrance into the kingdom, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you, what? The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it? Because that is where Jesus showed himself to these three men, James, John, and Peter. He showed himself in his glory, in his power. And at that moment, God the Father spoke in an audible voice that they could hear. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This voice that Peter says was born to him by majestic glory. When Christ received honor and glory from God the Father. So there was a there was something that Peter had in his pocket that nobody else could could participate in. But he was saying that when we told you about Jesus Christ, we're talking about somebody that I saw transfigured. We saw the coming of the kingdom in who Christ was presenting himself that time on the mount. We, we saw the glory of the Father right there in Jesus Christ being transfigured. So he observed it. But Peter doesn't stop here. and say, He doesn't say, and y'all just have to take my word for it, that Jesus is who he says he is and the hope that you should have in him. You just have to take my word. He didn't. Now, he was authenticating himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was authenticating the fact that what he said about Christ is true. But his observation of God's declaration of who Jesus Christ was, wasn't sufficient for me. <laughs> you know what? Peter, thank you. I believe that he influenced the gospel writer Mark, his nephew, to write a gospel that included that account. I'm glad that Peter wants to recount that situation here for me. But you know what? That's great for you, Peter. 
I don't doubt it. I don't lessen the, the value of what happened there on the mount. But that's what you observed. You observed the declaration of God. And it was, and you and you're telling me about it. That, but that's what? It's kind of like somebody telling you uh, about a wonderful trip that they took. They even bring back pictures, video. They may even send it to you before they even return back. And they tell you about all the wonderful historical places they've been to, all the wonderful architecture that they saw, all the caring people that they met. And they sit there and they tell you about their experience and they get home and they share it with you. And you, you don't deny it. You may be even a little envious of it. But it's their observation. They're trying to communicate to you, but it just makes me want to go. Right? That's the limit. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 19 and says, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Here's our connection to Romans. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Now, first of all, we need to make an observation in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, you may have been like me growing up in a church where the King James was prevalent. We have a much more sure word of prophecy. That sounds majestic. I kind of like it because it gives you the sense that what we have is a sure word. But the ESV, as we were reading, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, expresses the same thought, that what we have in the scriptures is confirmed. It's reliable. It's dependable. Just as Peter was saying, I observed the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, it, and it, I saw the glory, I saw the power of the kingdom of God. He says, but you know what? We got the scriptures. You can depend upon the scriptures just as much as I depended upon what I observed there when God declared that Jesus was his son and he was pleased with him. He's not competing. He's not saying, well, the scriptures are better than what he observed. I mean, how in the world could that be? He's sitting there seeing with his visible his eyes the, the transfigured glory of Christ. But what he is saying that in the scriptures we have something that is just as dependable than what he saw with his own two eyes and James and John being witnesses to it as well. It's more fully confirmed. It's dependable. It's reliable in darkness. As the psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist isn't talking about walking around in the daytime. You don't need a lamp in the daytime. Now, sometimes if that little sensor on your uh, newer car 
that's supposed to tell you when your headlights automatically come on and off. If you get some of that corrosion on the top of it, your headlights come on all the time. You don't need it. You don't need a lamp. So the psalmist is talking about when I'm walking through this world of darkness, thy word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path because it is reliable source of illumination. I can see because of your word. It's something that's not originating from the will of man. This is a, when I'm reading through this, my mind goes back to John chapter one. Where when we become children of God, it's not because the will of the flesh. Nor is it of the will of man. We don't get God's word through our own construction any more than we cause ourselves to become Christians. It's not through the will of man. It doesn't originate there. It's of no private disclosure. The term interpretation there really is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. So to translate an interpretation can be somewhat misleading for us because when we think about interpretation, we think about taking something that's not known and we study it and we want to make it known to someone. When really this word is better translated disclosed. The scriptures are not of some private disclosure. There's not some board or committee that God chose to go lock yourselves in a room somewhere where it's quiet and y'all get together and spend about two weeks together and see what y'all can come up with. Hmm. Amazingly, we understand that the scriptures are something is, is something that has been over centuries completed as God not choosing one individual but many to provide the word that he would reveal. And in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur made point of this word being used the same one that we find in Acts chapter 27, where they were on a ship sailing and there was a storm taking place and they fought against the winds of that storm, but they realized that they weren't making any headway. And they said, you know what, let's just flip our sails around. And let's just let the wind guide our ship. And MacArthur points out that as if the men that God chose to write the word of God was riding the wind in their sails as God was giving them his word. Again, as we were reading today, that all scripture is breathed out by God. That word inspiration there is not some enlightened feeling or some encouraging moment, but the word illumination or the word uh, that is inspired there is, is breathed out. And Peter is simply saying that there is illumination by God's declaration. That's where it's a lamp shining in darkness that God has provided. Something that we can trust, something we can commit to, something that God will reveal as he chooses. But it is his truth. 
And that's a wonderful thing that God has been gracious and merciful and kind enough to do so. But chapter 2. But all this wonderful thing that God has done in providing his word and using men to, to, to not come up with their own wisdom, but he's just simply blowing in their sails, giving them the words that they need. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the masks who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This isn't Peter saying that, you know what, church, there's going to be some godless governments that are going to persecute you, even though there are and there have been and there will be. He's not saying that those city council members who don't like the look of your church and they don't like the fact that you have tax-exempt status and they don't like the fact that you're paving your parking lot and you're keeping some other business from you know, giving them tax revenue. It doesn't mean that you won't have any of that. That's not what he's talking about. What Peter is talking about are people that are inside the church. We don't like to think of it that way. We like to think that, well, if we could just get everybody in church, everything's going to be okay. We like to think, well, they teach Sunday school class, so there's a problem with them because they're a teacher. Well, he's an ordained minister, so there shouldn't be any problem with them. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a Christian institution for training. These, these people are, are trying to send missionaries around the world. There's nothing wrong with them. But what is it that Peter says? But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly, subtly bring in what? Destructive heresy. Even to the point of denying the Savior whose blood purchases his people. And what will it do? It will bring upon them swift destruction. Now, Peter didn't say it's going to bring about soon destruction. Peter didn't say it was going to be immediate destruction. But you know when the destruction happens, when Jesus Christ comes back, as he goes on to speak about in detail in this letter, it will be swift. but we can't ignore the fact that Peter is saying that this will happen within the church. There will be many problems that we will face in this world outside the church. There will be many influences for sin that we will have to deal with outside of this church, but we have to understand that it is within the church the enemy waits 
and secretly, subtly, not, not, not in an overt way, not in a flashy, hey, we're changing the way things are going. It's just real subtle. Doing as the world in which we live does in a postmodernism world. Words don't really mean anything. So even you can even have a group that is out to protect people who are defamed change the word for, let's say, racism. Most of us in this room probably grew up with a definition that we all understood. We all agreed upon it. We all thought it was a bad thing. We didn't think it was something that anybody should be practicing. But just a few weeks ago, what is it? Oh, we're going to change it so that it really doesn't have anything to do with what you thought it had something to do with. Why? Because it's not accomplishing anything for them. They've got a different agenda. Don't think things like that do not happen in church. To where definitions of terms are changed for the convenience of someone's agenda. Now, what would be driving this? Well, Peter tells us. They follow their sensuality. Their sick, depraved desires. Selfish desires. Self-fulfilling desires. Self-exalting desires. They deviate from the truth, forsaking the right way. They follow... Whenever you see any kind of problem go on, you've heard this term, just follow the money. (laughs) Has anybody ever found that not to be true? Sooner or later, you're going to track it down to where somebody's getting rich off this. And let's not pretend it's just money. It's power. There's power. Control, position. And there are people who call themselves Christians who secretly insert heresy, false truth into the church for their own self-satisfaction. They make, as he says here, Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. That's what he's saying. They're going to make the way of truth, it's going to be vilified. It's going to be made to look bad. Can you think in any parts of the world in which you live and the culture in which you engage in the relationships in which you have, can you think of any opportunities in which people looked at what you think about the Christian faith and the truths that you believe are real about sin and about salvation and about hell and about heaven? Do they look at you and, what? You don't believe that? I had a recent conversation with somebody at work who has not spent a lot of time in her recent life in church. And we had the opportunity to talk. And the more she 
grew to understand what I thought about church and what I understood about Christianity, what I thought about repentance and what I thought about saving faith. The conversation went from, you know what? I might be interested. I might come visit your church to Yeah. And I went over into a corner and I cried like a baby. Saying, oh dear, people don't like me for what I believe. No. <laughs> now I didn't also go and parade and say, hey, I just ran somebody else off. I'm so glad that I have such a way of thinking that nobody wants to be like me. No, what I did is I went away sad. Thinking that there was somebody who didn't like the way God revealed himself in his word. They liked what they had traditionally known. And they, and they, and they liked the idea that, that God isn't going to reject anybody. He welcomes everyone. Um, there was some subversion of God's, God's declaration that has impacted that person's life. Somebody has secretly got in a teaching that, you know what? God isn't who the Bible says he is. He's really not that harsh. Or that's the Old Testament God, not the New Testament God. Well, guess what? The New Testament God tells me he's going to cast Satan and all who follow him into a lake of fire. That's the New Testament God. Because he's the same righteous God in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. And he demands us to follow his ways as opposed to the other way around. Which brings me to, again, this inability to separate myself from the study of the book of Romans. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And with what we have gone through, with what Peter declares about the word of God and the efforts to subvert it, Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to, those, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that, that, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. It's the world in which we live. Yet you realize that there are people in churches that would even deny that. Did you know that there's churches who are confused about the, home, the issue of homosexuality? that you can somehow be a homosexual Christian, unrepentant of the sin of homosexuality, even if, even if they don't practice it, that's just who I am, not in Christ or not. Do you believe that there are those who actually feel proud that they got individuals on their staff at church who would make such a claim? Some denominations even have ordained them. Did you know that there were people who partnered with missionary groups such as the North American Baptist Mission Board who say that the gospel is not enough unless there are economic and emotional recoveries is a part of the gospel. Did you know that there's people who say such stuff? Training people who were wanting to go to the mission field and reach people for Christ, who, as Tim reminds us over and over on Wednesdays as well as on, on Sundays when he reads through and talks about the millions of people who have never heard the gospel, and if nothing changes, they'll never hear the gospel, that there are people who think that when they hear the gospel, they need to not only hear that they need to be saved from their sins, but they also need to recover economically and have their emotions saved. Did you know that there's people in church who that believe that leadership is confusing. It's, it's We really can't nail it down that, you know what, if a woman feels like she needs to preach to a bunch of men, that that's okay. Because that's who God calls her to be. Listen to an interview this past week 
of a Southern Baptist co-pastor in Houston who said that when she first started pastoring with her husband, it was hard for her to figure out where to go because she didn't have any examples in her life of female leadership in the church. I should probably not say this, but I probably wonder if she had any male leadership examples in her life growing up in church. I don't say this because I'm just an anti-feminist. I don't say this because I'm a racist. I don't say this because I'm a homophobe or whatever type of phobe you want to label me as. I say this because there are men and women who are trying to subvert the gospel of Jesus Christ with false teaching. And their destruction will be swift and to those that they carry into hell with them will be on their hands. So, Mark, those issues really aren't that important, are they? Well, no, you ask God. You ask God who has revealed those issues to us. You ask God who has chosen to reveal them in truth. And you ask God who has, even within the creation in which we live, has revealed his righteousness. And what do we do with it? We suppress it. We suppress it with our unrighteousness. While weasels come into the church, just subtly, but we want to be more loving. We want, we want to be more compassionate to this group. We don't want to come across as unfriendly. We don't want to kind of come across as harsh. We don't want to turn anybody off. There was one co-founder of a network that works with missions agencies. We put it very simply. He said, you know, we in trying to reach our culture with church planning going forward, we, we don't really need to be worried about doctrine. We just need to be worried about doctrine that works. I'm sorry, that's stupid. That makes no sense. We have been given the word of God to preach. We've been given a command to go make disciples and teach all nations what? Everything that we have been taught. And we leave everything else to the Holy Spirit who has inspired it and has preserved it and continues to change lives through it. We don't succumb to the subversion efforts of those who would seek to take God's revelation because they don't like it, they don't think it's enough, they don't think it's sufficient, they don't think it's effective, they don't think it's valuable. May we stand in the truthfulness of God's word without shame, without apology, full of hope that if we mature in Christ, oh, what an entrance into the kingdom we will have. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, thank you for your gift of truth. Thank you for your promise to accomplish through your truth what you desire. Thank you most of all, Father, that this truth has been revealed to your people that we might know you, that we might enjoy you, and that we might look forward to an eternity where we will be able to serve you forever and ever. Father, I pray that whatever passion may have been revealed in my preaching today would only reflect the desire for your truth to be exalted. And that the efforts of the enemy to subvert it could be ran far, far away, exposed and defeated. But Father, this is your work. We, we need faith to live our life. And so I pray that, Lord, if, if nothing else, that those who hear this message will understand that you have the words of life. Your word is light in this world of darkness. That we need it. That as we've already prayed, it is the only food for our soul. May we feast from your word. May it change our lives and may it be propagated through the ministry of this church. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.